Oh Lord God, we come today uh, to a study of you and your perfections and attributes and nature and uh, persons. We praise you and thank you and pray that you would equip us for this study, that we would approach you with reverence and awe as we uh, behold in your word your revelation of yourself. We pray that you would make yourself known among your saints, that you would grant us a greater knowledge and understanding and love for you. We pray that you would uh, do this so that we might worship you in a fitting, worthy manner when we come to uh, our worship service. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Today we come to chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, of God and of the Holy Trinity. Uh, that would be the, the title of the chapter. And uh, I want to begin by, actually before reading that chapter, uh, reading a passage from Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, and perhaps uh, through verse 13. <clears throat> Jeremiah 10, beginning in verse 10. There it says, but the Lord, and there it's capital, all cap letters, referring to the uh, name of this particular God, to, to Jehovah, to I am. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses." Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. Uh, Mankind is one who is prone to go astray to idolatry, uh, to create his own idea of what God must be like, uh, to uh, fashion God after our own image or our own ideas of what must be the the right way for God to be. Uh, But of course, that's not our place. We're not able or equipped to do that. Instead, God himself has revealed himself. And that's why we looked at scripture first last week, and uh, both how God has revealed himself through um, his works of creation and providence, uh, the light of nature, as well as through his Word, which he has given us his, his special verbal revelation, not just revealing the way of salvation, uh, the way and what we ought to do, but also revealing himself, uh, that we might know him and know who he is. Uh, we don't get to uh, impute that to him. We ought to be uh, obedient, submissive to his own revelation of who he is. And Scripture, uh, as in this passage in Jeremiah, contrasts the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, uh, those who do not have breath, 
the, the idols fashioned by man, with the Lord, who is the true God as opposed to false gods. He is the living God. He is active. He is not something that we simply act upon, but he is one who speaks. He is one who acts, who saves, who judges. And he is the everlasting king. Uh, He existed before creation. He is the one who created all things. He will always be. He is unchanging. And he is the king. He is sovereign. And these are some of the truths that the Confession of Faith seeks to uh, explain and articulate and defend in, in a way that's basically overwhelming as you look at the piling up of terms and phrases from Scripture in these Uh, in this chapter. So uh, if you could turn there now, if you have a copy of it, or if you have one of the hymnals, and you can turn to the back of it. Um, Thomas, do you know what page it's on? 849. Um, I just want to go through this kind of phrase by phrase, um, going through chapter 2. It begins by saying that there is only, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection. So there is how many gods? One. One, that's right. And he is uh, living, he is true, and that sets him apart from all the false gods or so-called gods um, that uh, may be talked about uh, on earth. And God, it begins to describe who he is by saying that he is infinite in being and perfection. He is infinite in being and perfection. So his very being is without limit, without being bounded by space or time. And his perfections are without limit. They are indeed perfections. They are perfect. Uh, his, his wisdom is infinite. His goodness is, is perfect and infinite. His, uh, all that he is, his power is, is without limit. He is almighty. His knowledge is infinite. Uh, he is all-knowing. And so he is a being who is infinite in his being and perfection. Now the next phrase is that he is a most pure spirit. Um, And then it uses a few phrases to kind of expand on that point, that he is invisible without body, parts, or passions. Now, sometimes scripture speaks about God's mighty arm. Uh, Does that mean that God has an arm? No. No. What's the point of saying that God has a mighty arm? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor, an analogy. What do you use an arm for? For working on stuff, to, to exercise strength and power. And that's what it means when God has a mighty arm. It means he has great power by which he does things. He works things out. But scripture also says that he is a spirit. Uh, as Jesus said in John 4, God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Or Paul says in 1 Timothy, he is invisible. Is a body invisible? Uh-oh. No, a body is visible. You know, he is invisible. He is a most pure spirit. He, he does not have body or parts or passions. Uh, he, he's not at war with himself. He doesn't have parts because he's infinite, right? Uh, he, it's not like there can be part of God. Uh, 
being without passions here means he, he's, he's not able to suffer. He can't be driven by uh, bodily urges and uh, things that might be stirred up within him that cause him to get into a frenzy or a tizzy. Um, he is not like humans. Uh, when Paul was telling the pagans that he and Barnabas were not gods, he said, we are men of like passions with you. Uh, but God is not like that. Uh, God is not of like passions with us. It took the incarnation for one who is God to be able to suffer because as God, he is impassable. Uh, he is unchangeable. He is um, without a body uh, as he is God. <clears throat> goes on then to say that God is immutable. So that means he, he, he's unchangeable. Uh, everything that we describe about him has always been true. Uh, all his perfections and attributes uh, are unchanging. His, his wisdom does not get better. Uh, he is uh, per- perfectly, infinitely wise. And so you can't get more wise than that. Uh, he is immutable. He is immense. That refers to him filling all things. He fills heaven and earth. In fact, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Uh, he is found everywhere. And not just a part of him everywhere. All of him is everywhere. But not any, you can't contain him in any one place either. Uh, this is something that blows my mind. He is eternal. So that refers to his inf- infinity with respect to time that he is not bound by time, that he existed before the beginning, um, that he, uh, it, it is all, as it were, present to him. He is incomprehensible. That should be kind of clear by now. Uh, he cannot be uh, contained or comprehended by the creature. Uh, we can know him, but it, it's, our, our knowledge is always going to be uh, finite and, and creaturely. Um, only the Spirit searches the deep things of God. Uh, he is almighty. Uh, he is most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. Now, I think these things are all brought together because they're going to lead to the next statement that God works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. And he, he does that, and he's able to do that because he is almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, and most absolute. Um, He is the free one. Uh, He can do what he wants. Uh, He is wise, and so he works all things according to the counsel of his will, not without purpose, not randomly, not arbitrarily, although completely freely, uh, according to his own choice, and in a way that is holy, as um, Scripture uh, says in Psalm 115, uh, 3. Let me, I think I could quote it, but let me make sure I have the passage right. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so uh, he does what he pleases, and he does all that he pleases. And as Ephesians 1.11 says, he works all things, all things, not only our salvation, but all things according to the counsel of his own will, according to his wisdom, according to his purpose. Um, 
his own immutable and most righteous will, and it's for the, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, uh, for it, it is, he is worthy of such glory. Then it goes on to describe uh, his, his goodness. And um, John has given us several short statements about who God is. Not only does he say God is spirit, but what else does John say that God is? God is love. Yes, God is love. In First John uh, chapter 4, it describes uh, not that all love is God, but that God is love. He is most loving, and we really know what love is by uh, his love and the love that he shows, especially as shown through Jesus Christ, but it's describing his very character, his, his nature is one who is most loving. Um, in Exodus 34, when, when God passed before Moses and made known his declared his name. His name was more than simply some word, but was uh, who God is and described him in his character as well. And so in Exodus 34, it says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We'll get beyond that. There's a few other, another statement or two after that. But to just stop there, that is who God is. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He showed his generosity even from creation. Before man did anything to earn anything, God heaped up blessings upon him and gave him a whole world that was fitted out and, and full of riches and goodness. And when man sinned, God has also showed his mercy, his willingness to forgive, to supply redemption for sinners. And those who diligently seek him will find him. Uh, those who seek will find in fact, God is love, and that can be said because even before creation existed, God was one who loved. Uh, we'll get to the doctrine of the Trinity in a minute, but um, he exercised love from all eternity, that the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father, and the Father and, and the Son loved the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Father and the Son. You can you know, go among all three persons, but uh, love has been exercised by God from all eternity. But then he goes on uh, to, uh, in Exodus 34 to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is also a just and righteous God. That is who he has it been for all eternity. He is just and righteous, and that means that when sin occurs, his, re- his um, relation to sin is that he hates sin, that he is just, he's terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. <clears throat> what is another statement that John says about God? God is a, a spirit. God is love. 
There's another, a third one. God is... Truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah. And probably there's probably another statement about that too. But I'm thinking of something else. From 1 John. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Right. And so he is um, morally pure. He is holy. He is righteous. Um, And that is part of his nature as well. And so as we sing in Psalm 5 concerning him, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God hates wickedness. He hates sin. Uh, He does not delight in it. It cannot dwell with him. Now, of course, we see the character of God reveal itself in the death of Jesus Christ as both an expression of his love and his uh, goodness and grace, as well as his justice and his righteousness and his hatred of sin, uh, all manifested at the same time. Now, when Moses hears this great uh, proclamation before him about the character of God, then he bows down himself to the ground and worships. And that should be the way we respond to the, the revelation of God. His infinity, his, his perfection, his goodness, his righteousness. Imagine having a God who was not reliable or trustworthy, who wasn't eternal or who wasn't loving or who wasn't righteous, you know, who, who did delight in wickedness. You know, the, the, these are all the way God reveals himself and the way he is, is a, is a very good thing and also something deserving of worship and awe. Now, the second paragraph here describes God's sovereignty uh, and describes his sovereignty in, in different ways. Uh, First, it begins by talking about how God is independent of his creation. Does God need us? Does God need anything we could give him? Does does God need um, cows? Does, Does God need money? No. God is independent of his creation. As it says here, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. So God doesn't get life from us. He doesn't get blessedness from us. He doesn't even get glory from us. We can't add to God's glory. Rather, uh, we, when we glory, glorify him, we are ascribing glory unto him, and uh, we are manifesting his glory as we, for example, uh, manifest his ways, his, his righteousness, his love. Um, we, uh, he manifests his glory through us and to us, and uh, upon us, um, but he himself does not need anything that he has made. As Paul told the Athenians um, 
in verses, chapter 17 of Acts 24 through 25. Oh, that's why it's on the other page. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We are the ones that need him. Uh, He is not the one who needs us. He could have existed for all eternity without creating anything, and he would have been happy. He would have been blessed and glorious, and uh, yet uh, he decided to create us. And it goes on to say that not only is he independent, but we are dependent and subject to God. Uh, He is sovereign. goes on to say, he is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever he he himself pleaseth. Uh, That is a tremendous statement. Uh, He is the potter. We are the clay. He is the creator, the the fountain of all being. Of course, the of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things comes from Paul's words in Romans 11. And as uh, this was uh, something that even uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, recognized after he had been humbled by God <clears throat> in Daniel 4, 34 through 35. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now, he has most absolute dominion over heaven and earth, all authority in heaven and earth, and no one can say, you can't do that. No one can say, I'm going to stop you. Uh, But no, he has absolute dominion because from him are all things. Can I not do what I want with my own, as the uh, master in the parable says? And it's good that the one who has that dominion is also a righteous and a good God. Additionally, uh, with respect to his sovereignty, is his uh, all-knowing, his omniscience, uh, that God knows all things and he's not dependent upon us to tell him things. You know, does, does God need us to tell him what's going on? No. Now, he likes us to talk to him and tell him, uh, pour out our desires to him, but Uh, He is not dependent on us in that respect either. It says, In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. Or, in other words, not dependent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. Um, Again, this is kind of taking biblical statements in, in Hebrews 4, that all things are open and manifest before him, his sight. He, he discerns the thoughts of our hearts. Uh, he knows what is hidden. Uh, there's nothing that can be hidden from God. <clears throat> nothing is yet uncertain to him. It's not like he knows, well, if, the, you know, if this happens, then this will happen, and if this happens, this will happen. He actually knows that too, 
but he also knows, but this is what will happen, and this is what will happen after that. He, he knows all things, so nothing is, he's not sitting at the edge of his seat waiting to see what's going to happen like we are in a movie that we've never seen before. Uh, he knows all things, and all things are certain to him. And then the last part of this paragraph, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. And so, why can God demand any worship or service of any of his creatures? What's that? He is worthy. He is worthy of it. Yeah, he is the one who gave us our very being. We owe everything to him. Uh, he has sovereign dominion. And all his counsels and works and commands are holy and righteous and good. And so uh, they are right. They are wise. Uh, no one is going to be able to improve upon whatever he requires of us. It is uh, just. It is right. And so we see, for example, in Revelation 5, all creatures in heaven and earth and under the earth, they all ascribe uh, worth and honor and glory and dominion uh, to him who sits upon the throne, uh, to God. Now, before we get to the third paragraph here, any comments or questions about anything we've looked at so far? Any of the children know what is God? Can you help her out, Alfred? Unchangeable. Very good. It's the statement from the Shorter Catechism, which summarizes this very well, that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. All right, let's go to the third paragraph in the very brief time that we have left with us. I know we're over time, but we also started late. There are, that God is uh, triune. He is one God, three persons. I'll just go ahead and read this third paragraph. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. All right, so there are three persons and one God. The Godhead refers here to the divine nature. Uh, similar to the word, we might say, Godhood. And in the unity of that, there's only one undivided substance, one divine will, one power that they all uh, completely possess, um, that there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. We don't mean persons quite in the same way that we refer to human persons, because when we refer to a human person, we also refer to a human being. Uh, there's a human nature, but it's not numerically one, it's generically one, you know, that we all uh, are, have human nature, but there is more than one human being, you know, out there. Uh, but for God, there is one numerical divine 
essence. It's not divided up or apportioned to different uh, separate beings. Rather, there's one substance or essence or being. Uh, those are synonymous terms. And there are three persons. And they are not like the one God putting different masks upon himself, presenting himself in different ways, because uh, these are eternal persons that they have always existed. The Father's always been the Father because he's uh, always begotten the Son. You know, the, the Spirit is always proceeding from the Father and the Son, and they interact with each other. They relate to each other. Um, we see them uh, relating to each other, for example, at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Um, we see that in the work of redemption, it's the Son who takes on uh, human flesh and, and does that uh, work. And <clears throat> so we'll, we'll see uh, the three persons of the Trinity throughout the rest of the confession as, as they uh, create and do works of providence and, and redemption. But even before anything began, they were already uh, distinct. What marks the Father is that he is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. Uh, what's unique about the Son? That he's begotten of the Father. We say before all worlds or before all ages, you know, before time began in eternity. It's not like he began to be, uh, but rather he is begotten eternally. And the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, what makes him unique? What is his personal property? That's the technical term for it. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that's a biblical phrase. Uh, Jesus in uh, John 15 not only says that the Father will send the Holy Spirit, but that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Uh, that's this uh, already is true of the Spirit. He proceeds from the Father. And the way they work in history uh, kind of reflects uh, who they are uh, from eternity, that as he proceeds from the Father, so he will be sent by the Father. And he's not only proceeding from the Father, because not only is he called the Spirit of the Father, but also the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ, and multiple passages such as Galatians 4, 6. He's not called the Spirit because the others are not Spirit. No, you know, God is Spirit, but he's called the Spirit because he is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Father and the Son, similar to the way the Son is the Son of the Father, as referring to his personal property, personal identity. But they all share all the attributes that we just described of God and are one. <clears throat> and so, how should we respond to this? We should respond to this doctrine of God by meditating upon it, considering these things. Uh, these are overwhelming things. We should fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. Take him seriously. And if we fear the Lord, we should seek his mercy. Like, he's the one that is important to deal with. You know, if, if, you, if you take someone seriously, if you fear them, um, you're going to try to come to terms with them. You know, he's the one that we ought to uh, seek reconciliation with, seek his mercy. And we should trust him, knowing that he's reliable, trustworthy, good, um, that so we should have faith in him and not doubt him despite appearances. We should worship him reverently and give him your complete submission. Like Moses, fall on your feet and worship him when he reveals his nature. And to rejoice in him with thanks, with love, for he is the fountain of all good gifts. And so the true knowledge of God should lead to uh, piety. Uh, piety being that union of reverent fear and grateful love that produces dutiful devotion. And that should be our response, which we should manifest here in 
few minutes when we gather again for worship. Let's uh, close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your loving kindness and your grace that you have shown to us. You who uh, fill heaven and earth and cannot even be contained by them, who is infinite and perfect and righteous and holy. You cannot uh, tolerate or excuse evil, yet you have set your love upon us. You have created us and then brought us to life through Jesus Christ. Uh, We do not deserve this. You do not need us, and yet you have shown us this great mercy and generosity. And so we give you thanks and praise and pray that you would continue to show this love and faithfulness to us in accord with your nature that you have revealed to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.